just been to see Her Majesty the Queen. And I will now form a government. Well, the mandate she's got is lost Conservative seats, lost votes, lost support and lost confidence. Hello and welcome to Election Weekly, a podcast that really doesn't need any sleep. I'm Laura Hood, politics editor at The Conversation UK, and I'm joining you on the morning after an incredible night in British politics. Very few people who pay any attention to this kind of thing have been to bed, including myself. Having called an election in the belief that she was on course for a giant majority in Parliament, Theresa May is now fighting for her political life. Far from sweeping the board, her Conservative Party has failed to win enough seats to form a government by itself. Meanwhile, having been written off as no-hopers from the get-go, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party has made a major comeback. The balance of power now hangs with Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, which has 10 MPs and has agreed to work with May to support her administration. But this is far from a strong and stable government, as was promised to the electorate. It's perhaps better described as weak and flimsy. It could really fall apart at any moment. And all this is happening while the clock ticks towards Brexit. May is meant to start negotiations for the UK's departure from the European Union within a matter of days. But now it's far from clear what the UK electorate actually wants from that deal. Joining me to discuss this astounding outcome is Tom Quinn, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Government at the University of Essex. Hi, Tom. Hi. And Louise Thompson, Lecturer in British Politics at the University of Surrey. Hi, Louise. Hi. Thank you very much for joining me today after what has been quite a hectic night for everybody. Could we just start off by talking about what the current state of play is as we know it? Theresa May has said she isn't going to resign. Louise, how tenable is her position as Prime Minister? Well, um, it's a lot more difficult than I think we thought it was going to be. You know, back in uh, back in April, she's in a position where she's got the largest number of uh, MPs, she's got the biggest party, but obviously she hasn't reached the magic number. Um, she's not actually got a parliamentary majority. Um, so it makes her position difficult in a parliamentary sense in that um, she uh, can't form a majority government, but it's also making her position difficult uh, in the sense that she called this election on the basis of winning a majority to um, strengthen her position. Tom, how on earth did we get here? And As Louise said, she called this election with a huge lead in the polls, thinking that it was just a matter of walking through to an excellent result. How did, where did it all go wrong? Because she fought an absolutely appalling campaign. It was complacent. Her policy offer was unappealing. And she really had nothing to offer the voters um, in the way that the Labour Party did. The, the most memorable policies from the Conservative manifesto were things like uh, getting people to um, pay money for social care from from uh, the proceeds of uh, their houses or cutting back on winter fuel payments and um, and things like that. Nothing really that would make people want to go out and vote Conservative. There was a lot of talk of strong and stable leadership, but it was a soundbite and that's all there was. In contrast, Labour ran a very positive campaign and, and although there were questions over the extent to which the numbers added up for their spending plans, it enthused a lot of people. So the Conservatives just seemed to take the electorate for granted. And in the end, their lead was whittled away. And here we are with a hung parliament, which no one predicted. 
in hindsight, it, it sort of feels incredible that any party would assume um, that they could offer the electorate basically nothing and still win. Why, what, what on earth were they thinking at uh, Conservative HQ, Louise? Well, I think, you know, if you looked at the, the polling at the time, you know, they were in a position of confidence. Um, it, it probably didn't matter to them what, what the concept of the manifesto was going to be. The, the polls are showing that they were going to be victorious. So I think that it, it's a mistake from uh, Conservative uh, Central Office. But, you know, it's one that we could probably back then maybe understand. Yeah, I'd I just add, let's um, be honest here. No one took Corbyn seriously. No one thought that Labour was really going to surge in the polls. They started the campaign in the mid-20% range, and everyone was saying it was going to be worse than 1983. And if you had said to anyone at the beginning of the campaign Labour would reach 40% in the polls, they'd have thought you were mad. And yet that's what happened. So Theresa May and her advisers clearly thought the same, that there was no way Labour was going to close the gap. So it was possible, as they probably saw it, to make pledges that were not necessarily going to be popular, but which they felt needed to be done for the good of the country. And that once they had won the election soundly and with a big majority, they would then have a mandate to do that. But of course, um, the voters decided otherwise. Where do you think um, we go from here for Theresa May? She is um, going to continue as Prime Minister, she says, but how is this going to work? What are the pressures going to be on her from her party, from within Parliament and from the electorate? Well, her authority shot to pieces, and so is her judgment, frankly. After calling this early election, let's remember she could have waited another three years to go to the polls, but she went early whilst having a majority in Parliament and wanting to win a bigger majority, and, and then she lost the majority she had. So she is damaged goods. It seems that um, there's enough people in the Conservative Party who want her to stay on at least for the short term. It would seem a bit odd if um, it were another Conservative leader taking over right now um, when we've just had an election and there, there isn't even a majority for the Conservatives, perhaps Labour would think that they should have um, a, a go at trying to form a government. So she stays on, but I can't actually see this being for anything much longer than the short to medium term. And what about in, in Parliament, Louise? What kind of, yeah. what, how, how do you think things are going to play out for May? Well, I think to, to just pick up on um, Tom's point about um, May's parliamentary majority, I mean, you know, if you think about the 2015 Parliament, she had a, a working majority of, you know, 17. It was big enough to, to be OK, but it wasn't, you know, plain sailing. There were still issues. And now it's, it's likely to be you know, even smaller than this. We're talking only a handful of MPs. Um, it's going to make, uh, you know, simple things really difficult. Um, you know, just getting votes on the Queen's speech through will be interesting. You know, we're talking about relying on, or it seems like relying on the DUP on each and every vote. Um, it'll be very, very difficult. To, to what extent are the DUP and the Conservatives in agreement on important issues? How delicate is this relationship going to be in practice? They're probably you know more more natural allies than a, a Conservative, um, you know, Liberal Democrat, for instance. A, a agreement would have been, mm. um, you know, I still think there there's likely to be issues, and you know, the DUP leader is, is probably going to be one of the most important figures now it's going to be you know moving on from um, thinking about you know the liberal democrats or the smp in the last parliament maybe as the important party small parties to you know thinking about the dup as well 
it would have been much easier for the Conservatives if it had been the Ulster Unionist Party that had 10 seats rather than Democratic Unionist Party because there are historical links between those parties. And um, if you think back to the uh, 2010 general election, which also ended in a hung parliament, there was actually quite a lot of hostility from the DUP towards the Conservatives at the time. They they um, may see eye to eye on some things, but certainly not everything. And the DUP has tended to have more working class support amongst uh, unionist uh, voters in Northern Ireland. And that will probably be reflected in the things that it will want to see uh, concessions on policy wise, such as uh, perhaps the winter fuel allowance. So they, they are not as close allies as, as uh, the Ulster Unionists would have been, but they, they are the only option for the Conservatives. And, um, and that gives DUP some, some bargaining power here. Um, going back to uh, the Labour Party, having defied all expectations on the night to produce something quite spectacular, where did it all go right for them and for Corbyn? What was so impressive about their campaign, Louise? Well, I think if yesterday or the day before, we would maybe not have said their campaign was impressive. <laughs> um, if you think about what Corbyn was doing, it, it appeared, or at least appeared to me, like he was um, really trying to shore up, you know, traditional Labour support. He was visiting, you know, seats that were, you know, fairly strong Labour seats. Um, so it looked like he was trying to make sure he didn't lose seats rather than, you know, working on, on, on gaining lots. Um, but I think what the results have shown is that, um, you know, benefited massively from um, a bigger turnout among young people. Um, so clearly that's where what's boosted um, Labour's seats this time. Yeah, I, I've um, been sceptical of a lot of the um, uh, strategies that Corbyn has adopted, but I think you have to give credit where it's due. He's he's really shown himself to be a very good campaigner and, and he's experienced at it. Um, his past as an MP was not as a front bencher, government minister or shadow minister. It was campaigning on his various causes and issues. And for three consecutive summers now, he has spent each of those summers campaigning, two for Labour Party leadership elections and now this for the general election. He's much more at ease when he's going around the country, giving stump speeches, talking to, to people, speaking at rallies. Um, than he is trying to manage uh, his own um, hostile MPs. I think the, the point at which this campaign really turned, though, was with the leak of the Labour manifesto. That really changed a lot of things. Um, I mean, there were other things with the Conservatives' uh, social care plans, but from Labour side, the, the leak of the manifesto, because I was really interested in the reaction to that amongst many Labour activists and supporters. Um, they were absolutely delighted when the manifesto draft was leaked and then when it was confirmed uh, some days later. It was the manifesto they had been waiting years for, which they'd been denied by Tony Blair, by Gordon Brown, even by Ed Miliband, they felt. And then all of a sudden they had these genuine left-wing policies, um, a real alternative to the Conservatives and something to go out and campaign on. Um, and they were able to um, take this very energetic campaign and enthuse a lot of people uh, to come out and vote for Labour, especially young people too. So I think that was uh, an absolute game changer. Louise, do you agree with that? Do you think the manifesto promises were appealing to yeah, young voters? And I mean, if you think about 
the the position Corbyn is in now as well. I mean, if I've got my figures right, he's performed better than you know Ed Miliband did. He's performed better than um, Gordon Brown did in terms of you know number of seats. So it's it's really um, you know considering he's very much a more of a traditional politician in his campaigning style, as Tom has you know already told us. It's um you know it's really a, a massive victory for him, even though he's not actually victorious. He's done really really well. What does that mean in in practice? What what can he achieve in his strength and position in opposition, on a day to day basis in Parliament? What kind of issues could he, he could he fight for? How could he make Theresa May's life difficult? I think he's definitely in a in a stronger position than in the last Parliament in terms of you know simply having more MPs to put behind um, you know Labour's voting in Parliament. It, it doesn't mean because he's got more MPs that he is necessarily going to be able to do even more than before anything. Um, will inevitably come down to working with, um, you know, other parties. It will be in the same, same as the last parliament, you know, working with the SNP on things um, to try and, um, you know, force the government into making concessions. On the basis of the last parliament as well, you you wonder whether uh, more MPs on the Labour benches means more enemies uh, of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but of course, having seen his performance in in this election, perhaps some of those MPs who were critical of him will start to come around, certainly to some of his uh, policy positions, if not necessarily on uh, defence, then perhaps on economic policy, public services and austerity, where he's really gained some traction, I think. But what about the very biggest issue of the day, uh, Brexit? We are 10 days away from uh, negotiations beginning. Uh, We are not in a strong and stable position. Where does this leave Brexit negotiations now, Louise? You know, it makes it much harder. It makes May's position, you know, much less credible. It's not as she's not going to be going to these negotiations in a stronger position um, as before. And in terms of, you know, coming back, there's going to be a real issue about, you know, would anyone have any confidence that if May returns, um, you know, from negotiations and tries to put something through Parliament that, you know, this would actually get through. So I think it does actually weaken it quite considerably. I, I mean, there's different ways of, of thinking about this. Of course, Theresa May wanted to call an early election in order to get uh, a mandate for her vision of Brexit. And the fact that she hasn't got her majority uh, will lead many to say that she has been denied that mandate and that a different path should be pursued. Perhaps things like the single market and the currency union um, could be back on the table rather than um, Britain leaving them. The position of Labour here could be quite interesting because one of the things Corbyn did in this election, of course, was to accept the triggering of Article 50 and to accept that the result of the referendum should be respected. And one of the things he managed to do, despite receiving a lot of criticism for that, was to neutralise Brexit to quite a large extent during this election campaign. It's remarkable how little it was actually talked about because many people thought, right, it's settled, we're doing it. Um, And the fact that Labour had accepted it sort of reinforced that view. So perhaps he will be uh, willing to support the um, pursuit of a certain type of Brexit. It's hard to say, but This is where he might run into trouble with some of his own MPs because there's a lot of uh, Remainers sitting on the Labour benches, a lot of those so-called moderates uh, in the uh, Labour Party, as they're often called in the press, support um, 
either a soft Brexit or remaining, will they start to cause him trouble if he wants to accept a harder type of Brexit than they would like to see? It, it's a, a major area of uncertainty at the moment. And also, let's talk about what's going down in Scotland. Um, very, very uh, significantly changed picture there. SNP have uh, have suffered some real losses overnight. Louise, what does the picture lo- look like for them in parliamentary terms? Oh, the SNP had a, had a really terrible night. I mean, they lost about a third of their seats. It's um, uh, They're still the largest party in Scotland. They're still, um, in terms of parliament, um, the third largest party. Um, but they're not going to have the same impact as before. They're not going to have the same um, morale, I guess, that the party had you know, quite demonstrably in the last parliament. Nicola Sturgeon today has said that they're still and they still won the election in Scotland, and you know she's right. They have. They've still got more um, MPs in Scotland than anybody. They've still won uh, a greater proportion of the vote, but they've um, you know really dropped massively um, from the last election. And I think um, part of that is the amazing success of Ruth Davidson's Conservatives um, and really playing up the issue of independence that the SNP were actually trying to keep quite hidden. I think during most of the campaign. How has independence played into how the vote's broken down in, in Scotland? Um, well, I think um, the SNP were um, obviously concerned that um, talking about independence too much would really uh, alienate some of the voters that had come across to them um, in the 2015 election. Um, so it's, it's really not been something that they've been um, talking about anywhere near as much as they did in the 2015 campaign. And the Conservatives in Scotland have exploited this somewhat and really tried to make that and the agenda, you know, pushing it, uh, a second independence referendum if you vote SNP. Um, and I think that's definitely um, alienated some of the voters that they um, achieved to bring over last time. It's almost as if there was um, a, a separate election going on in Scotland compared to uh, England and Wales. It was just seemingly fought on a different basis. And that was, uh, as Louise said, um, the SNP and its quest for a second independence referendum. And it's it's going to be very hard to see how the Scottish National Party can really push ahead with a demand for a second independence referendum, certainly this side of the next devolved Scottish elections in 2021, by which time the SNP would have been in government for 14 years and will presumably be suffering the same sorts of problems that long-serving governments always suffer from, being blamed for various things that go wrong and seeing its uh, votes and seat share decline. The, the Conservatives, having not had a real role in Scottish politics for uh, a long time, have now rediscovered an old role to be the party of the union, and that's the basis on which they surged in this current general election. And that the the hope for them was always that if they could do well enough, and this was at the upper end of expectations, that that would give the Prime Minister the confidence to refuse a second Scottish independence referendum unless there were a demand for one after the next devolved Scottish elections. And if that were not possible, because the SNP has lost its majority by then, or, or has rather has declined further from its current position by then, then who knows, it might be enough to kill off Scottish secessionism for a generation. That was the prize the Conservatives were looking for. We'll see if that turns out to be the case. Uh, you know, also with the SNP, we've lost 
Agnes Robertson, the party's leader at Westminster. Um, we've lost Alex Salmond. It's, it's a real blow for the party, but it's also a blow for the leadership of the party going forward. And, you know, we don't know at the moment who will actually lead them in the House of Commons. There's obviously some contenders, um, but that's going to be a real, you know, really hit them hard at Westminster. Um, so, both of you, when do you think we're going to be having another election? Are you excited for another one in the next few months or years? I'm definitely not excited for another one. <laughs> Do you think we're going to have another one? Uh, I don't even want to say. <laughs> don't want well, to predict anymore. Tom? It's it's possible because the, the numbers in the current parliament, as they are, are just so fine and balanced. I think the Conservatives are predicted for 318 or 319 plus 10 from the DUP. That, that's still a wafer-thin majority, um, uh, even, even with those two parties. And... It's, it would not be a surprise to see another election fairly soon, perhaps as early as next year. We'll have to wait and see. Of course, we have the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, so it can't just be done automatically. But they found a way to get around that this year, and uh, presumably they could do the same next year. So it's, it's uh, really choppy waters that we're in now. People are talking about this as a seismic change in, in British politics. Is that something that you would agree with, Louise? Um, I think it's definitely there's definitely a very big change, you know, from the last two general elections. And I think if I if I had to sum up, or last night when I was trying to sum up what was happening, you know, what I was thinking was actually it's it's a re- almost return to you know two party dominance, except neither of those two big parties can actually be dominant. That's one of the interesting changes, because the combined vote share of the Conservatives and Labour is about 82%, 83%, which is the highest since 1970. And it's on the back of the collapse of UKIP, which is one of the big stories of this election. Um, and the fact that um, its vote didn't just cross over wholesale to the Conservatives, but split between the Conservatives and Labour. And of course, the failure of the Liberal Democrats to uh, revive their fortunes significantly since their collapse uh, two years ago in 2015. So uh, voters have tended to use those parties as protest vehicles against one or other of the major parties. This time round, there was a significant difference between the two major parties. Uh, enough people saw a point in voting for one or other of them, and there were enough negatives associated with the two major protest parties, and of course, problems with the SNP in Scotland as well. So for those reasons, the vote has gravitated towards uh, Conservatives and Labour. Whether that will remain the case uh, indefinitely, I don't know, but um, but certainly for, for the time being, uh, it's two-party politics once again. Mm. That about brings us up to speed uh, on what we know so far. This is a very rapidly changing picture and I'm sure there's going to be a lot to say over the next few weeks. Thanks very much to both of you for joining me today. Let's all go and get some sleep. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. This is the last episode of Election Weekly. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to us over the past six weeks. I hope that we've provided some useful insight into the rather strange world of British politics. Who knows, maybe we'll be back again before too long covering the next general election. This episode of Election Weekly was produced by Gemma Ware and the music you've been listening to is by Jason Shaw. 
We'd like to give a really big thanks to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. To hear more podcasts from The Conversation UK, do check out our monthly show, The Ant Hill. That's all from me, Laura Hood. I'm off to bed. <laughs>